I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. From 1047 WHUPLP Hillsborough, this is She and Her. I'm Sandra Davidson. And I'm Anita Rao. Welcome back. We're so happy to be here for our second episode, and we're still glowing from the feedback y'all gave us to last week's episode, Wear the Damn Bikini. For those of you who are new, She and Her is a radio show and podcast that features stories about millennial women. Every week, we discuss topics that we and our audience would like to hear more people talking about. Last week, we had fans call in and give us some show ideas. We've built today's episode around a submission we had from Hannah Friedman in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Hannah's in her second year of law school, and she called us to reflect on differences that she's observed and how her male and female peers seek help from professors and mentors. The fact that I'm aware that I have to frame it differently and that I have different considerations as a woman in asking for help, basically it's the same thing as like how we need to stop policing how women talk and that when we say like women need to lean in, women need to ask for help, what we're really saying is like it's your job to be assertive, even though society has taught you not to be assertive. So I would like you guys to talk about ways that men and women who are a little farther along professionally can encourage people to, can encourage women to ask for help rather than putting it on young women when we know that that is extremely difficult and we've actually raised them not to ask for help in these ways. Hannah's call inspired us to take a deeper look at how gender impacts how we communicate and why thinking about gender and communication matters. On today's show, you'll hear three perspectives on gender and communication. We're joined first by Alexandra Petri. She's a journalist from the Washington Post who recently got a lot of attention for a satirical op-ed she wrote about gendered communication. Then we hear from Julia Wood, a communication scholar who spent her career examining the link between gender and communication. We close out the hour, checking back in with Hannah Friedman, who will reflect more on her experience as a second-year law student on the job hunt. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, turns into... Mikhail, I I hate to cut you off here, but um, I just... Is this wall, I have to ask, is it doing what we think it should be doing here? That's Alexandra Petri. She's reading from her satirical op-ed recently published in the Washington Post. Her piece came after Jennifer Lawrence's recent essay about gender pay inequity in Hollywood. Lawrence described how she makes less money than many of her male colleagues, 
and she attributed this in part to differences in how they negotiate contracts. While her male colleagues can be direct or demanding without repercussions, Jennifer is afraid to come across as bullish, bratty, or aggressive. Alexander thought Jennifer Lawrence had a point, and she was inspired to write a follow-up piece. She took historical quotes said by men, like, give me liberty or give me death, and filtered them through what she calls woman in a meeting language. The piece went viral, and we called her last week to discuss how it all began. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your work with The Post. From what we can tell, it seems that you write about gender and culture often. Yeah, I think I consider my beat to be like things that the internet is upset about. And often those fall along the lines of gender and culture. Those are two things that people are bumping into every day in some capacity, even if they don't notice it all of the time. And like when you're made to notice your gender, I think that can often attract a lot of comment and sort of excitement. So how did the idea for this particular piece come about? Basically, I read the Jennifer Lawrence piece in the Lenny letter where she was talking about the difference in how she was perceived expressing her opinion in a meeting and how her male colleagues or even employees were where they would speak straightforwardly expressing their thoughts without having to pause to wrap them in bubble wrap. And she tried doing the same thing and people perceived it as aggressive or sort of thought that she was being too blunt. And that really struck a chord. And I thought, well, this is a phenomenon I've seen. Maybe a way of conveying this would be to take statements that have been said famously by men throughout history and just put them through the filter of how do you couch this when you're you're trying to express it in a group without sounding like you're a hideous dragon beast who's going to rise up from the sea and eat everyone's young. So, I mean, take us take us to it. Give me liberty or give me death, Patrick Henry. But I think if a woman in a meeting were saying that, it would probably go more along the lines of, you know, Dave, if I could, I, I could just, I just really feel like if we had liberty, it would be terrific. And the alternative would just be awful, you know? That, that's just how it strikes me. I don't know. I don't have it pulled up, but the the one where you talk about I came, I saw. I think it's I came, I saw, oh, yeah. I conquered, and it was like I'd like to thank everyone. I don't want everyone. to toot my own horn here at all, but I definitely have been to those places and was just so honored to be a part of it. As our team did such a wonderful job of conquering them. <laughs> to me, this is a piece that uses satire and humor to shed light on a broader cultural phenomenon. For me, sometimes what can make something funny is if you describe it as accurately as you know how. And this piece was just a case where I was seeing this thing and trying to put exactly the pattern on paper that I'd witnessed. And in a lot of cases, if you can just take something and just just sort of take whatever's implicit in it and try to make it explicit, that can actually be humorous and maybe can get the point across in a better way than just like railing and rampaging and pounding on your chest, which is another strategy that I've tried from time to time. I'm wondering if you can walk us through sort of some of the particular communication uh, styles of women that you were trying to poke fun at. Obviously, you talk about the sort of making the eye into the team and making everything really positive, um, maybe going through a couple of the specific things that you were really interested in sort of picking apart. I don't want to get into the side of the table where people say, you know, it's women's fault for talking the way that they're talking. I think people have this tendency to really pick apart the way women talk. There's such a thing as like picking it apart too much, but... That being said, I think a lot of the things that women get told are too aggressive are things where they're saying, I did this thing, as opposed to saying, well, you know, this was a group effort. Or when you're cutting somebody off, I think there's a lot of people in meetings where someone will be talking and then somebody else will start to talk over them. And if the person who interrupted, there have been studies on this, is a 
man, he'll just barrel through, and if it's a woman, they'll sort of withdraw. Just also saying, I feel this way, or like, I think this, like framing opinions not as objective fact, but as your subjective experience of the thing can also be a tendency. I think guys can often wander into a room and say, you know, this is objectively the best plan, or this is objectively the best music I've ever heard in my life. And a woman will say, well, I just feel that this is really terrific. For whatever reason, those styles get different responses. One thing that I've thought a lot about is saying I'm sorry, and I feel like I do speak up in meetings, but I, if I am going to interject, it's along the lines of, I'm sorry, I just, I wanted to add, I'm wondering, you know, being so aware of this, have you noticed particular habits of your own in meetings, and has this changed anything for you and how you communicate? Well, I think, yeah, the sorry thing is a huge thing, and just, the sort of hedging, like, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I just wanted to like Sloane Crosley wrote this wonderful essay about how she noticed that she only said I'm sorry when she was actually irate and felt that a great in, like injustice had been done to her. But if she'd been waiting for you know three hours at a table and then the waiter came by, she'd be like, I'm really sorry, but it just seems like maybe I've been here for eight years. And just I think when I was trying to think about like why I I would do that, and I always feel like the other person will hear you saying that and they'll be like, No, you're right oh my gosh, like, not only was was this a great indignity perpetuated against you, but you are a hero for taking it so well. But I don't think that's actually how it reads. I think it just reads that the other person's like, what did you do wrong? Why are you apologizing? Seems like you've been sitting here. So I have tried to monitor that. And I I think I'm getting slightly better. Mm -hmm. But it's a struggle. No, I think in an ideal world, everyone would just be able to talk uh, just oh god <laughs> in an ideal world everyone would be able to talk whatever way suited him or her and we wouldn't have these sort of gendered forms of speech or even anything that we we thought of this way but clearly this is still an experience that resonates and so i think it's important to call it out and sort of notice it to a, and just say well if this is happening why is it happening and what can we do so that everyone feels comfortable expressing what they think instead of having to spend like six years sort of weaving delicately around your point. Can we get to a stage where everyone feels that they can just put it on the table and say, I came, I saw, I conquered, you know, tear down this wall. Obviously this piece went viral. It does resonate with many, many people. It just stunned me what a chord this struck actually, because after I wrote it, I started getting emails pouring in from all kinds of people saying, this has happened to me. I've noticed myself speaking this way and I've been pinching myself now that I've read this because I've noticed that I do put this filter on my words or other people saying, I just express myself straight out. And then I got feedback from people saying, can you put a smiley faces in your email? You're coming across way too strong. So it's not even people are doing this because they're sensing that it might be an adaptive mechanism. They're doing it because people are telling them you need to. People have been told to, which blew my mind, like radiologists have been told to. Wow. I saw a couple of pieces floating around the internet in response to your essay or your op-ed that basically suggested that it didn't reflect well on some women that there are many women who do not police their own talk. And I was just curious what you would respond or what your response is to that. Well, I sort of have two responses. The first one is that if you come away from my piece thinking I'm saying women are talking wrong, that is not what I was trying to say at all. I'm trying to describe the pressures that cause women to maybe talk this way, or even non-women people to sort of hedge their statements. And the second one is a lot of people, their response wasn't, oh, man, like, this is terrible, or, you know, 
why are you portraying women this way? Their response was, I have never seen this, or the women I know don't talk like that. And I think on the internet, one of the most dangerous things you can ever say as a retort to somebody else's lived experience is, I've never experienced that. Like, therefore, what you just said is not valid. It's like, no, if you haven't experienced this, you've been exceptionally fortunate and you're surrounded by really empowered women and go team, hooray everyone. But that doesn't mean that this is not happening because I think the reason people were sharing it was because they had experienced it and it did resonate. That was Alexandra Petri. She's a journalist from The Washington Post who writes about gender, culture, and all things that the internet is upset about. You can find out more about her and read her article at her website, sheandherradio.com. With all this to process, we now turn to Julia Wood, a professor emeritus at UNC Chapel Hill and a leading communication scholar. Julia has spent her career studying how gender affects communication in relationships, professional settings, and beyond. We asked her to tell us about the history of gender communication studies and to give us an idea of how this phenomena affects daily life. If you would just start in, by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the field of studying gender and communication in the first place. When I went to school as an undergraduate, there were no courses in gender and communication. Nobody had heard of something like the women's studies curriculum. And yet in studying communication, which is my field, I became increasingly aware of differences between how men in general and women in general uh, conversed in situations ranging from leadership positions to social uh, encounters. And so I began trying to learn about gender and, in essence, I guess, gave myself um, a a post-PhD training in uh, the field of gender, which was just beginning to emerge as an area of study in the probably late 1980s. Well, what can you tell us about how gender shapes how we communicate? Um, We use the term gendered communication to uh, refer to the fact that, in general, and by that I mean there are exceptions, but in general, uh, men learn a a particular style of communication. Uh, We can call that masculine style. And women learn another style of communication, which is feminine style. Now, I'm not alleging, as uh, some people do, that the styles are absolutely different or we're from different planets or anything so extreme. That's not the case. But there are differences, some subtle, some not so subtle, in how we are socialized, which is really the basis of gender. It's not about sex that is being male or female. It is about being socialized to be masculine or feminine. And if you're socialized to be masculine, you're, for instance, more socialized to be independent, to be ambitious, to be decisive, to be competitive, uh, assertive. Those are qualities that within uh, Western culture we associate with masculinity. On the other hand, if you're socialized to be feminine, you're more socialized and expected to be cooperative, caring, supportive, polite, emotional, um, responsive to others. And these, these are differences in the expectations we learn for ourselves that then are incorporated into how we communicate. What was it like for you to bring these ideas to colleagues, these brand new ideas, these brand new ways of looking at communication through the lens of gender? When I first started researching gender as, as an influence on communication, I was primarily known as a scholar of interpersonal communication. But as I was learning more and more about gender issues, 
it became clear to me that it would be helpful in terms of writing about interpersonal communication to give some emphasis to the ways in which gender shapes our communication within our personal relationships. So I submitted a manuscript for a book to my editor, and my editor liked it fine, sent it out for reviews, and one of the reviewers said, there's no room for gender in this. If you want to write a gender book, go try to write a gender book, but it has no place in a book on relationships. And I thought to myself, my goodness, that's really curious when gender inflects every aspect of our relationships. Now, to my editor's credit, we published that book anyway, and it began, I think, in a, in a small way to get people thinking about gender as part of how relationships work and later uh, to see how gender is working in professional contexts, how gender is working in civic contexts. There's not um, a place, a kind of communication, uh, an arena of communication that we can think of that is not influenced by gender. What are some examples of how those directly shape how we communicate? Well, for instance, if you think about uh, professional contexts, um, if, if a man in a professional context is somewhat abrupt and uh, interrupts others to make his point and so forth, he's likely to be perceived as behaving appropriately, as long as it's not too extreme, but behaving appropriately because he's stating his mind, he's firm in his convictions and so forth and so on. A woman who engages in those very same behaviors is likely to be perceived as being obnoxious or in, in, in sort of the uh, general language, the way it's described, as being a bitch. Uh, and it's the same communication behavior, but he is behaving in ways that are consistent with expectations of masculinity, and she's behaving in ways that are not consistent with expectations of femininity. What would you say are some of the consequences of uh, gendered communication and the implications of it? People may say, okay, it's how we talk, but if women are sitting around the table at a meeting, why does how they express themselves really matter? Uh, increased understanding of the ways in which gender shapes communication really empowers each of us to be more effective both in understanding others and in expressing ourselves. So, for instance, if we know that many women are socialized to be somewhat deferential, uh, to use somewhat tentative language and so forth, that they are socialized to do that, then we're not li as likely to interpret a comment that includes tentative language as being somehow weak. If we know that men are socialized in, in the rough and tumble of um, their, their play, their games, war, football, various games that are more typical of, of boys and girls, they're socialized to interrupt and to push their way into situations. We who are not socialized that way, who don't communicate that way, are less likely to interpret an interruption as rude, but to try and understand it within the context of a different sort of socialization than we've had. And I think that ability to think from the perspective of another, whether we're talking about gender or many other factors, I think that is critical to effective communication. One of the things that we've been struggling with as we process this episode is how to start this conversation in a way that the burden just doesn't fall on the women. We can't just re-socialize women. We need to talk about how everyone can share that burden. 
And I mean, I think that is exactly right. And that's why uh, people like Natalie Fixmore Arise at Iowa and I have consistently argued that gender can't be just its own area of study, and you study it if you happen to take a course in gender. But it has to be integrated into courses on business communication, on public communication, where we have uh, a greater variety of people perhaps taking those courses. And so it has to be mainstreamed in that way because, you know, it's not going to work if just just half of us know what's going on. One of the other guests that is going to be featured on this program is a woman from the Washington Post who recently wrote an article about the phenomenon of woman in a meeting. I don't know if you Alexandra saw Alexandra Petrie? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. we, we spoke with her last week. Uh, and I'm wondering from your perspective as a gender scholar who's – studied this issue for decades, how you reacted to that article and the kind of, and and looking through this, looking at this issue through a humorous lens. I thought Petrie was <laughs> spot on. You know, I thought she was exactly right in what, what she presented and uh, her, her satire was um, well-placed because women often have to be much more careful than men do. They have to be careful that they are both sufficiently feminine to be perceived as consistent with that gendered image, and yet also strong enough to be consistent with the image of a leader. And finding the space where those two can can simultaneously be achieved is really difficult. Uh, men don't have this problem because being appropriately masculine is virtually the same as being appropriately um, acting like an appropriate leader, at least as far as our culture's definitions of both are concerned. Do you think that we'll ever get to a place where communication is less gendered? Well, I'm not not necessarily sure I want to get to a place where we're less gendered because I think gender and I think some of the differences are kind of interesting. Um, And and add to the, um, the rhythms of the culture and of life. What I hope we get to is a point where the judgments and evaluations of the different genders are not so disparate, um, where they're seen as equally valuable and as uh, equally effective in doing a variety of things, but different ways of doing it, just as there are different ways of doing many things. But I would like for some of the judgments of one is better than the other to just just uh, be modified over time. And if you ask me if I think that will happen, the answer is yes. You know, I have seen so much change in gender relations, race relations, uh, understanding of different sexualities in my lifetime, just just a few decades that, you know, I I think we're going to keep going forward with this kind of broadened awareness of the range of human beings. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That was UNC Chapel Hill Professor Emeritus Julia Wood sharing her decades-long investigation into gender and communication. We're going to take some time now to dig a bit deeper with Hannah Friedman. You heard a bit from her at the top of today's episode. She's a listener who called in last week to share some of her thoughts about gender communication dynamics that she sees playing out in the classroom and the workplace. Hannah is in her second year of law school at the University of Michigan, and we asked her to start off by telling us a bit about the environment she grew up in and what factors shaped how she learned to communicate. I grew up in Durham, North Carolina at a Quaker school, and I attended the Carolina Friends School from kindergarten through high school. And I think that was probably the biggest um, determinant of how I learned to communicate Um, We called our teachers by their first names, and classes were very small, and we were really encouraged to speak our minds a lot and be very honest um, and vulnerable in the classroom. And I think that tied in with sort of how I think about conflict and consensus building, which is also really relevant to how my parents dealt with conflict. And any time we got in a fight, we all had to go into the living room and sit on the couch and talk as a family until everything was resolved, which was totally annoying as a nine-year-old, but made me really comfortable with communicating. And especially as a younger child, I feel like my mom was always saying like, Hannah, what do you think? And encouraging me to to speak up, even though I was the runt of the litter. (laughs) Well, so you called in last week and talked a little bit about how you're very aware of how gender is shaping communication in professional settings. So you're mm-hmm. in a law program. Um, you all are learning the law and you, you know, intend to go out and practice. And I'm wondering if you see similar gender dynamics in the classroom and in the way that your colleagues communicate with each other, communicate with mentors, professors, and even, I guess, argued cases. Uh, gosh, where to begin? Um, I think this process of being in law school has been by far the most, I think the most gendered environment I've ever been in. And I'm aware in law school that the institution of law and law school was built by a very specific group of people, namely very wealthy white men. And the classroom, I think, is built around a very narrow concept of demonstrating intelligence and demonstrating an ability to analyze a legal issue that is really intimidating for everyone, not just for women. I think I was talking to my friend Greg about this this afternoon and how I feel self-conscious in class. I feel uncomfortable speaking up. And Greg said, well, I feel uncomfortable speaking up too. And it made me realize that thinking about gendered communication in the classroom isn't just 
impacting women. It's impacting everyone that like gender politics, just they determine the whole environment and they impact women and other you know minorities more than men, but they really just sort of decrease of like the value of education for everyone, which is what's so disappointing to me thinking about the ways in which we could be communicating more effectively. I'm wondering if there's any specific example you feel comfortable sharing about any comment that you've heard that really hit you in a particular way or made you feel less safe to speak up in a particular environment? I mean, on a daily basis, professors will say, like a professor rolled his eyes at the idea of using different gender pronouns in legal opinions. Like, that's just a waste of time. Why would we do that? Um, We spent most of class one day talking about whether or not affirmative consent in rape laws, like the idea of yes means yes, whether that's actually reasonable and should be legally required. There's many, many professional guidelines that women have um, in law school interviews that are, to me, just archaic. Like we were told in our legal practice class that in most courts, like if you really want to dress traditionally, you should not wear pants in court and you should wear pantyhose to an interview um, we were told for on-campus interviews that our hair should look, should look quote-unquote sleek. And all of these ideas, uh, like attention to our appearance and attention to, again, how an old institution is being put upon to make room for women and for people who haven't historically been in law school is really alienating. And just, it, like, it gives me this, I can't describe the physical sensation, but it's almost, it's like anxiety. It's like I just start sweating and I start looking around and wondering, like, did anyone else hear that? Am I totally crazy? And then I just start spiraling. It's like, I don't belong here. Like, this space is not for me because they obviously don't want me. Like that, And then I'm just not listening. Then I'm, like, facing out the whole lecture. And I think those kind of things, I mean, it's so isolating. But then you're in a public setting when you're hearing it. So it's almost doubly isolating Mm. that you can't see other people necessarily. You don't know if other people are identifying with that experience. I can imagine that that feeling really lonely. Exactly, exactly. And that's, I mean, one of the most powerful things has been, of course, has been talking with women about it, but feeling like I have genuine male allies in the classroom who later on will be like, whoa, that was really intense. Like, or how are you feeling? That was a crazy class just like checking in and making light of it and feeling like there's some sort of community and that the institution isn't always going to be like this. What do you think can be done about that? I know in your initial comment to us, you mentioned that you feel like this conversation is often framed in a way that tells women that they need to do better. They need to talk differently. They need to speak up more. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that how how you feel in, in a law school environment? Do you see potential solutions Yeah, so one of the reasons I called y'all was because I was thinking about how much there's a pattern between the way that we ask women to police how they talk. So we, you know, no more saying, I feel like this, or you know, or I don't know if this is right, but, and professionally I'm being advised to, quote unquote, advocate for myself and ask for favors. And that women don't do that as much as men, and that's a problem, and women need to ask for help more. Um, But to me, the implication in all of these things and fixing women's behaviors 
is that what we're doing is irrational and what we're doing isn't adaptive behavior to a structure that's taught us that this is the most effective way of ensuring that we're heard in the classroom or ensuring that we get the job that we are qualified for. And so I've been thinking about ways that professors and teachers and professionals can encourage women to feel like they belong and they can ask for favors and they can be honest and assertive about their opinions. So I think one of the ways in class that especially male professors can do it is a lot of my male professors will say things like, you know, I'm on the committee to ensure safe environments in the classroom. And it really matters to me that women feel safe speaking their minds in class. Like even that, just saying it, just knowing that it's important to that professor makes me more comfortable to speak up. Um, The way that professors talk about rape culture, um, talk about the history of feminism, talk about suffrage, uh, the words they use, and even the cadence, those things to me are palpable and affect the way, like how safe I feel in class and how, whether or not I feel like I belong. And professionally, I think, you know, I've had mentors who have said to me, anytime you need help, if you want me to make a call for you, let me know. Let me know if you ever want to get coffee. Like I'm happy to answer any questions you might have. And that I think is another huge encouragement for me to actually reach out and make those connections because otherwise I'm worried that I'm inconveniencing them or being too aggressive and too ambitious. And I think the ways that we can support women by affirmatively saying, we want to hear what you're saying, we care about you feeling like you belong in this classroom and in this workplace, again, shifts the burden onto society to say, like, we recognize that you've adapted these behaviors and that was rational, but now we want to change the environment. And part of that is, is on us and not on you. Hannah's call gave us a lot to think about. In fact, we had another listener call in last week to tell us a story about advice that she received from a med school career counselor. The counselor encouraged her to wear a skirt and not a pantsuit when she goes in for residency interviews later this year. So it's clear that Hannah's reflections span far beyond just the law school environment. Her call gave us a lot to talk about, and yours can too. We want to know what you want to hear on She and Her. Record a voice memo and send it to us at sheandherradio at gmail.com. Now we'll close out the hour as we always do, with music curated by our guests. Here's what they suggested. Well, right now, the entirety of Hamilton, the soundtrack, is my only playlist. It's sort of invaded everything on my iTunes and has taken up all the top 25 slots. It's crowding out every other song. It is terrific. It's got some feminism, and it's historically accurate. And I could, like, go into it right now, but the the last thing that Hamilton needs is my inept sort of exuberant recitation. But that's, yeah, top of my pops right now. Well, I always go back to Carol King's tapestry. It was formative for me, as was um, Helen Reddy's I Am Woman. Uh, quite, quite a piece for its time. Uh, so those are two two favorites, and uh, Joni Mitchell, Carly Simon, they they were artists who were really very much a part of my coming of age. 
So things I've been listening to lately are the Peaceful Piano playlist on Spotify, M&O, which is really fun, and Maiden Heights. And then I've also been watching Justin Bieber's new Sorry video on Loop, which is another show, I'm sure, about bad feminism. Can't win them all. You can hear all of the songs that our guests selected on our Spotify. Follow us there at She and Her, that's She Plus Her, to listen to each episode's playlist. Or visit our website at sheandherradio.com and find our playlist embedded there. She and Her is written and produced by Sandra Davidson and Anita Rao. It's recorded in WHUP Studios in downtown Hillsboro, North Carolina. Cameron Laws designed our logo and wrote our theme music. She and Sam Gerwig performed it for the show. Thanks so much for listening today. You can tune in live every Thursday night at 6 p.m. on 1047 WHUP or to the live stream at whupfm.org. And check out our podcast on iTunes. We'll get you new episodes on Fridays. Up next week, love thy spouse but take their last name. Stories about women who have and haven't taken their partner's last name. Stay tuned. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.